160 million. That's how many worldwide viewers there are on the Super Bowl every year. Chances are, a couple of weeks ago, you were one of them. And if you hung around after the final whistle, you heard Peyton Manning, the Super Bowl winning quarterback, say something slightly out of place. No, he didn't say he was going to retire. He said he was going to be drinking a lot of beer, Budweiser in particular. And he said it not once, but twice. At that moment, the same thought went through everyone's head. Did he get paid to say that? A Budweiser spokesperson says no. An advertising professional is estimated to be worth at least $13.9 million in free advertising. Maybe more after all the discussion, the social media activity, and the podcast episodes. I find myself asking that question a lot. Did somebody get paid to say that? And oftentimes I have trouble finding the answer. For example, when somebody joins us on Mountainmeister and gives us a gear recommendation from one of her sponsors, does she get paid to give that gear recommendation? We're exploring that on today's episode. How do athlete sponsorships work? What does the brand get? What does the athlete get in return? And most importantly, how does that affect us as outdoors consumers? We'll hear from a couple of professional athletes, a large outdoors brand, and a talent manager who will explain, or at least they'll try. Well, that's a hard one. Um, it, it really depends. Uh, they're all a little bit different. It really depends on. There's so many sides to that question, but I, but I guess. I'm Ben Shank. You're listening to Mountain Meister. The best um, sponsors or the best relationships are ones that are partnerships where there is give and take. That's Rebecca Rush. She's a professional mountain biker and author of Rush to Glory. And I'm not just asking for money because I'm Rebecca Rush and I'm rad. Um, I'm actually looking for a partnership and, and where they actually want me to work and they want me to do something and provide something back. Those have been the longest running and the best partnerships are the ones where, where it is give and take. My name is Andrew Skirka, and I'm a professional adventurer, guide, author, and speaker. One of the companies that I work with, Sierra Designs, um, their interest in me um, almost exclusively for the last year has been on product development. So I've been working much more um, on the back end with the designers and developing product and testing feedback or testing product to give them feedback um, and working on line architecture um, to make sure that all the products that are in the line have a have a case to be to be in the line. Now I'm also teaching women's clinics and I'm doing speaking engagements and I'm giving them product feedback and I'm writing articles for them, training articles. And so I, I can actually sort of be the voice or the expert um, and lend credibility to a brand uh, because I've, I've built sort of a resume, so to speak, and built that experience over, over the years. Whereas another company um, or other companies that I've worked with in the past, um, including, for example, I've uh, recently started working with Merrill, and that relationship is much more consumer-facing and much more marketing-based. And there will be a product development piece to it, um, but that's actually almost more at my insistence than theirs. And um, they're more interested in taking my story and leveraging it into their channels. So athletes like Rebecca and Andrew provide this multifaceted package of services, both internal, like product testing, gear feedback, and also external, the consumer-facing stuff, 
stuff that you and I see. In return, brands give them anything from gear to funded expeditions to money. I sat down with Katie Ramage. She's the director of sports marketing at the North Face. And the responsibilities of my team here at the North Face is to manage all of the professional athletes of all sports, all of our events owned and sponsored, the expeditions that we support, as well as some of the partnerships that we're involved with to help tell the stories of our athletes. It's pretty core to our history as we go on our our 50th year next year as a brand. And really our whole motto is athlete tested, expedition proven. And so you know, it's just, it's really ingrained in our DNA to, you know, have our athletes um, propose their their dream trips. Um, now, you're a business, though, so this is marketing. If it's aspirational marketing, how do you kind of decide what the expeditions are and make sure that the broader audience can relate to them? Yeah, it's, well, it's twofold, right? There's, um, the mechanics of it are such that every year, Sometimes multiple times a year, we open it up to the team to propose their expeditions. And we put some guidelines like, um, you know, here's, here's kind of the stories that we would like to tell. But by and large, you tell us what it is that you want to do um, to, to kind of express yourself um, in, in your outdoor space. And so they submit proposals. And we as an internal committee that's comprised of the product team, the marketing team, sometimes the sales team, um, kind of weigh in on what we think, uh, you know, is are the are the trips that we want to support and tell a really well-rounded story. So that's kind of how we approach the the proposals and um, and kind of uh, develop the roster of expeditions that we're going to get behind. And so we really look for a variety of criteria. It sounds like the athletes are getting a lot out of this deal. Well, we don't we don't approve all of them, obviously, uh-huh. but um, you know what we get in, in in return is is quite a bit. Inevitably, they're doing stuff that's so inspirational, uh, like Maru, for example, which is just a pure example of how these trips really lead to a huge sense of joy and accomplishment for the athlete, but just. They, they become ideally just phenomenal stories for the general public to see and be inspired by. So, you know, we don't know that every single trip is going to be a Maru or a home run for the masses in that way. But, you know, you really have to kind of keep getting after it to try and find those stories that really resonate um, with the core and and my mother, who <laughs> is always the test of, you know, when something hits the mainstream. So it all sounds great, right? The brands are supporting the athletes to allow them to do what they love. In return, the athletes will leverage their skills, their influence, and their expertise to help out that brand, whether that's through storytelling or gear testing or telling their social media following about the latest and greatest products. Unfortunately, it isn't that simple. Here's Andrew Skirka again. I think it's bound to happen. And the reality is also that, that depending on the amount, amount of money involved, um, you know, sometimes, your, sometimes your endorsement can be bought. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there definitely have been cases um, where, and I've seen them and have been sort of involved in some where 
the deal was just too attractive to turn down. And um, you just, unfortunately, that's a part of being a, being an athlete. Money is, um, it really does tarnish motivation for people. They end up choosing what they want to do for different factors instead of the love of the sport. Now, this issue of, quote, selling out isn't really new to sports, but compared to the more mainstream sports, outdoors athletes rely heavily on sponsorship income. The prize money from races or other forms of competition is minimal, so they need these brands. They're integral to the process. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, Jonathan Retzik, uh, founder of RXR Sports. And um, I manage um, a roster of uh, prominent outdoor uh, adventure sports and endurance sports athletes. These include Alex Honnold, Conrad Anker, Emily Harrington, Scott Jerk, and some other athletes that we featured on this show. Jonathan's job is to manage their speaking engagements, their press opportunities, media exposure, anything that really maximizes the brand-athlete relationship. So I think there's a real responsibility that the athletes and the brands all need to take. And, and that's not to, not to bullshit your, your, your fans and to, to be, to be straightforward with, Hey, you know, thanks, uh, BMW for sending on, us on this trip. Hey, you know, thanks Gatorade. You know, I, I think that, um, it, it doesn't work when people are trying to, to hide what they're doing. I think you just gotta, if you, if you need to thank a brand, you just got to go and, and own it. What's going to separate the good storytellers from the bad storytellers is, yeah, how they, they walk that line of, you know, doing the, the commercial stuff in order to, to finance their, their career and their trips, but at the same time able to, to tell authentic stories and, um, you know, I, I think that it really comes down to the, the talent of the of the individual. Yeah. Typically, there's been like a divide, it seems like to me, between advertising and then the content, especially more in media platforms. You know, yeah. like in a podcast, you're going to hear the sponsorship message separate from the content most of the time. Um, and then also magazines, for example, it's pretty clear when it's an advertisement. Um, but it almost seems like these athletes are now providing content and when they're sponsored, it almost erases that gap between the content that they're providing and the advertising. Do you see that? Do you, and do you see that as an issue? Yeah. Oh yeah. To totally see it. I mean, um, but the thing is that the brands are always going to be integrated into, into the athlete's life because we they use the products for their sports right if you're a professional cyclist you need a whole fleet of you know ten thousand dollar plus bicycles mm -hmm. uh, your sponsor is going to give those to you and those are going to end up in in you're going to race them or you know ride them and people are going to take photographs of you with those those bikes and you know it's just they're inherently connected I think one of the things that I insist on early on, and thankfully all of the companies that I work with agree with me on this, is that they don't want it to be contrived or, or unnatural. They want they want me to be talking about products um, 
or endorsing products that I believe in and um, that I feel really confident about in recommending. Uh, all of the relationships that I have are designed to be long-term and it doesn't serve anyone's interest if I'm promoting A, B, and C product and they're really pieces of crap and you know everyone finds out and my reputation goes down and so too does that of the company I'm working with. Before we look at how this impacts us, it's important to understand how much there is to be gained. I spoke with Rebecca Rush about her contracts. They're all a little bit different. No two contracts are the same. And I will say for seven years with Red Bull, there was no contract. There wasn't. It wasn't no, it wasn't. It was wasn't even a handshake. It and, was just like, yeah, okay. And they were paying <laughs> There was you. nothing written down. Yeah, and they were paying me. They just said, hey, represent us in a positive mm-hmm. way. Like yeah. they, they didn't even, wow, that's, that's very surprising. Okay. But now there's a contract. Yeah. Now there's a contract. I think their legal department was kind of like, Hey, you really, you really <laughs> guys got to tighten this up a little bit. Um, but it's still very open ended. Uh, uh-huh. and, it, and one thing that, that is really cool about them is they're like, there's nothing like you need to do this race or that race or that. It's like, just, just, we already know we like you go, just go do rad shit mm-hmm. and, you know, and so so they're they're one end of the spectrum where they they actually and they stuck with me through my you know transition from adventure racing to bike racing. You know, I called them up and I said, "Hey, adventure racing's dead. I, I have no team anymore. We lost all our other sponsorship." And they're like, "Well, you have a year left with us. Just just find something else. Wow. We're not going to take the money back." And they said, "All right." And that's how I found twenty four hour mountain bike racing, and it launched. That was you know nine years ago. That launched a whole another part of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and they gave me the freedom. That was really cool to just pick something else. Um, so that's one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end, you know, there's contracts I have that require a certain number of tweets a week mm-hmm. and, you know, a, an exact race schedule. And, I mean, most of mine, because they're great relationships, they're pretty open. And they just, you know, say, keep doing what you're doing, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never had any of my partners come back and say, oh, you did two less tweets than you were supposed to do last year, okay. you know. Um, but they are looking at social media numbers, and I'm sending them statistics even before they ask them, you know, okay, this is what I've done. I send end-of-year race reports. I send quarterly reports, mm-hmm. just so they actually know that I'm working. And, and that has given me the freedom for Red Bull to be like, yeah, we know you're going to do great stuff. Just let us know about it. So here's something. When you're on this podcast right now, mm-hmm. is there a sponsor's name that you could say? And by saying that spot, or sorry, your partner, um, by saying <laughs> that partner, you make money just by saying it. No. No direct relationship right there. No. Okay. Because I was going to give you the chance, you know. Well, thank you. Yeah, my top four are Goo, Red Bull, Niner, and SRAM. And without you know those four, and what's really cool is I don't have all my eggs in one basket. So if I lose one of them, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm diversified essentially, and they all really work well together. They don't, mm-hmm. you know, and so they benefit by me having the other partners. SRAM benefits from Red Bull right. exposure, etc. Yeah, I mean, again, these are all unique individuals. That's Katie Ramage from the North Face again. Who bring unique things to the team. And again, when we look at the team, it's we also look at like the different sporting categories and what their expertise is. And some people are more predisposed to social media, like a, a Tom Wallish, one of our free skiers. And that's how he got his start was through social media when 
you look at the likes of Peter Croft, who's arguably one of the most talented climbers that there there ever was, you know, I don't, I don't know that he is on social media. So you have to look at each person's, you know, expertise and what they bring, uh, you know, differently. And so with that, we, we customize whatever compensation agreement seems to make the most sense. But can we expect everybody to act 100% responsibly? The reality is that these brands are in the business of selling product, and the athlete is somebody that is followed and trusted by that brand's potential customers. And I, I did have one sponsor. It was actually a really small partner mm-hmm. um, that was just like on me all the time. Like, you've got to talk about, you know, this product or that product or that product. And they had a multiple number of products. And I said, you know, look, I'll talk about I use these three things that you make. I'll talk about those. I'm not going to talk about the stuff that I don't use. I just won't. And they were really, really pushing me. And I ended up ending the relationship with them because it just didn't feel, it didn't feel good anymore for them to have me want to like really promote something that I don't believe in using. Yeah. And so I ended it. Is that company still around? Yeah, they're still around. Uh They're out there. You know, (laughs) it's just small. It's just a product, you know, I mean, I don't want to say just a product sponsorship because it was stuff that I was using, but, um, but it wasn't worth it in the end for me to, to sort of not be authentic. Rebecca made a responsible decision in ending that relationship. It wasn't worth it to be inauthentic. Is there an amount, though, where it would be worth it? How much can these athletes make when they have a following? I did some research and came across a term called influencer marketing. Google it if you're interested in learning more. One simple metric is called CPM, or cost per milli also known as cost per thousand. This is the same metric that's used in magazines, in newspapers, even podcasts. For every 1,000 listeners or viewers or readers you have, there's a dollar amount. For an influencer with, say, 10,000 followers, you would take 10 times whatever the CPM is. Let's say it's 10 in this case. 10 times 10 equals 100. So that influencer would make $100 per tagged post with their sponsor. I asked Jonathan Retzik about this to see if we could figure out how much these athletes stand to make. What is that number, or is there a ballpark number for an Instagram post that uh, where the athlete tags a sponsor? Sure. Um, it's not as simple. Uh, there's a lot of different factors that go into, into pricing. Um, you know, who the brand is, who the athlete is, what's the creative around it. Um, is it just a tag or is it a specific call out? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's a, a number of different, different factors that influence pricing. So, um, yeah, I can't, I can't really give you a good, good formula. I saw five bucks, uh, somewhere. Is there, is there a median number? Would you say my $5 ballpark is, is close? Uh, and I'm sorry for how many for every thousand um, every thousand followers. Oh no, that's way low. That's way low. Yeah. So ten dollars, twenty dollars. <laughs> so so I'm saying, for example, an athlete that has a million followers on Instagram, if that five dollar CPM, that would make them fifty five hundred dollars per or sorry five thousand dollars per tagged Instagram post. It's much higher. 
I only want to talk about the stuff that I want to use and that I do use. And I, I think that that's the athlete's choice. And I don't know, I, but I would be, if somebody came and said, you know, here's $10 million to wear this watch, that would be really hard to say no to. I totally <laughs> do it in a heartbeat. I would too. It was $10 million. It was $1 million. I would do it. So watch manufacturers out there. If you want a piece of this. <laughs> Okay, so maybe not $10 million, probably not $1 million in this industry either. But the point is that everybody has a number. On the surface, maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal to throw out a gear recommendation a few times or post something on social media. Except maybe it is a big deal. We've already heard that endorsements can be bought, and if that's the case, doesn't that make the endorsement inauthentic? Back to my conversation with Katie Ramage from the North Face. Recently, I've I've kind of become cynical in looking through a lot of the stuff that's on social media because I'm finding out that a lot of things are maybe inauthentic. Well, they're maybe authentic, but they're the athletes getting paid to put it on there. So how am I supposed to trust that? How yeah. am I how am I supposed to trust that? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point, and it, what's kind of funny. I mean, just as a kind of sidebar to all this mm-hmm. is. Um, I was just in Boulder um, on Monday with our free skiing athletes who range in age from 19 to 23. Um, and, and the whole purpose of the meeting was to start talking about the um, uniform that the free skiing team will be wearing in the Pyeongchang Olympics mm-hmm. in 2018. So again, back to like uh, the athletes kind of drive everything for us. Um, that that was the whole purpose of the meeting. But in you know, here's this young group of people who are just, uh, you know, on social media constantly. And so we, we, we talked a lot about it. Like, are you guys, how are you feeling about social media? You know, are you starting to get burnout and or are you just on it constantly? And they're like, you know, we are getting so sick of social media, like to the point where I'm, I'm starting to boycott it and, and post less and less because I think that they're just starting to swing back the other direction, you know, and, and, and we had a lot of conversations about just kind of retro and going back to simpler times and living in the woods. And like, so I feel like they're kind of starting to rethink their position on social media in general. And so I feel again, naturally they're going to reject those more superficial posting. I'm, I'm curious, are you on Instagram and Facebook? Me personally? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Being a professional in the marketing industry, do you look at things in a different light than the typical consumer? Uh, I, I get – probably yes. I get – this is kind of like answering a question like if I'm suited to be on a jury because I, I read the paper all the time. But I think – I try and stay objective. I'm not really super active personally in social media um, in an outward way, but I definitely observe uh, as much as I possibly can, be it in our space and other spaces, to kind of form an opinion on, you know, what I like, what I don't like. I've discussed this with a bunch of people, and I always seem to get the same response. But you can't tell when when somebody, an athlete or public figure is honestly saying, you know, this is what I use. This is a goo that I use for this race. This is exactly what I ate for Leadville Trail 100. 
you can't tell the difference between that and somebody sort of like doing a fake ad. Take a second to think about that. Do you know the difference? For me, the answer is sometimes. And honestly, I don't think sometimes is good enough. When stock market analysts recommend a stock, they're required to disclose if they own shares. When doctors recommend another treatment or a different facility, they have to tell you as the patient if they have a financial interest. When professional athletes tag an Instagram post and recommend a product, should they have to disclose their financial interest? Here's Andrew Skirka again. I would tend to agree with you, yeah. I mean, the line, kind of the church and state line between advertising and content is uh, definitely blurring. And I think the important thing there is just that if authors or if content developers do have some sort of biased interest that they are disclosing that. Hmm. So, for example, uh, if if I'm writing a gear review about a product, say a Sear Designs product, um, I should be putting in a disclosure somewhere in there saying um, I work with Sear Designs as a as a product consultant and that I receive this product for free. And oh yeah, there's also a an affiliate link in here. So if you click on this link and that takes you to say Backcountry.com or REI and you buy a product from them, I will get a small commission based on that purchase. We all should be putting in those disclosures. And also, I think as a consumer, it's good to be cognizant that this exists because I've noticed since I've started this podcast, I've made sure that I look to see what kind of links are in, in certain articles. And many times they are affiliate links, which means that the company gets paid when you buy something through whatever they're linking to, which means, or maybe it doesn't mean, but... I, I kind of get this idea that what if the company's putting that link in to make the money rather than having that be genuine? That is something that every consumer has to or every reader has to make a decision about. The next time you see an article that reads something like, these are the 10 items you need this spring, check the link. If it's a long, intricate string of text and numbers, most likely that site will get paid if you end up buying the product. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. If the website helps drive sales for that product, maybe they should get paid for it. But again, just like the athlete sponsorship, it's not a perfect system. And there's definitely there's content out there that is designed to generate affiliate revenue rather than content that was put together for the well-being of the community that they're serving and they are able to support it through affiliate revenue. It's there's, it's not black and white, but I, there is a spectrum of motivations. I wish that there was a simple and easy-to-implement solution for all of this, but unfortunately, that isn't the case. Hopefully, this episode at least gives you some insight into what goes on behind the scenes and helps you understand the process a little more. Remember what Jonathan Retzek said earlier? I think there's a real responsibility that the athletes and the brands all need to take, and, and that's not to, not to bullshit your, your, your fans. And that responsibility doesn't stop at the athletes and the brands. It's the responsibility of media providers like me to first create the best, most relevant content and then figure out creative ways to make money based on that content, not the other way around. And then it's also the responsibility of us as outdoors consumers to do our homework, research before we buy, get information from multiple sources. One last thing. Some people might say, hey, we've got bigger fish to fry than worrying about whether or not athletes are stretching what they do to please their sponsors. Maybe. 
but a lot of these sports are dangerous. Could an athlete, say a base jumper, feel pressure from a sponsor to engage in something riskier just for increased popularity? Or maybe the athlete puts the pressure on him or herself to think that somebody could get hurt or die. Just to cash in on a paycheck would be devastating. Fortunately, I didn't get that vibe from anyone. People, I think, who are, are at that level and, and taking that big of a risk, they have to be doing it for themselves. Um, they started doing it without any sponsorship or partnerships. And so as they get, you know, Alex Honnold or any of those guys, it, if, they're, if they don't have the right frame of mind or the right motivation, there's no way they could be doing what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's just really never been our culture. If anything, I'm constantly telling Alex to take up bouldering or something closer to the ground. We're very careful about who we work with, especially around, you know, yeah, more, more dangerous or high risk sports. Um, but I, I'm, I'm very imp- often very impressed with the, the restraint that um, a lot of the brands that we work closely with have uh, in terms of uh, high risk activities. I encourage athletes to not be dependent on sponsors and to find a way to make it work that where you don't need them. You might choose to work with them, but you don't need them. And uh, hopefully if you don't need them, then you're not doing things that are excessively dangerous uh, to yourself. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Mountain Meister. Hope you enjoyed. If you have any comments that you'd like to make public, Go to mtnmeister.com and leave them in the discussion forum on this episode's page. Any resources and extra information that's relevant will be on that page, too. If you'd like to engage in more of a private discussion, feel free to shoot me an email, ben at mtnmeister.com. I think this is a really important topic and something that I want to keep doing responsibly in Mountain Meister's future. Oh, and by the way, If I can get the director of sports marketing from the North Face on the phone, you bet I'm going to try to capitalize on that opportunity. By the way, if I could just have, like, if you have five more minutes, I don't know if you have ever considered sponsoring a podcast, but if there is, it's this one. (laughs) Well, we have... This episode of Mountain Meister was not supported by the North Face, but maybe a future one will be. As usual, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Until next time, you've been listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.